chapter 38. The text for the sermon tonight will be verses 12 through 26, which we will read only one time this evening. So pay particular attention to those verses, 12 through 26. But we begin at verse 1. This is the Word of God. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son. And he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kezeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Verse 12 begins our text. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. 
And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son. And he knew her again no more. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out, and she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. The grass may wither and the flower may fade away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a day of reckoning coming that will involve all people who ever lived. Everyone will be summoned before the throne of judgment. The graves will be opened. The sea will give up her dead. The rocks that fell and covered some men will be removed. And the cowering sinners will be exposed And every sin will be accounted for. The big sins and the little sins. The sins that were done openly, as it were, in the streets. And the sins that were done under cover of darkness. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 36. That every idle word that men shall speak They shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. That will be the great day of the Lord on which the whole world will become guilty before God and God will be vindicated as the one who alone is righteous. But there are times, as it were, when God moves this day forward in individual cases. Now there is no courtroom a man walks into as such. But there is a reckoning that God arranges through the circumstances of his life. Sins that were done in darkness are suddenly pulled out into the light. Evil that was concealed in a closet is suddenly proclaimed upon the housetops. That's what happened to Judah. Judah was living in guilt that for many years he kept carefully concealed behind a web of lies and deception. Judah was a schemer. Judah was a murderer. Judah was a man who was living in the world as the friend of the world. Well, God saw Judah and everything that Judah was involved with. And God said, Judah's day of reckoning has come. 
And that's not because God hated Judah. If God hated Judah, He would let him keep walking down this path until he perished in the final judgment. But God loved Judah. So God allowed the trap to be set. He allowed the sin to be exposed. He allowed the reckoning to take place. For only through such a reckoning could Judah ever know the grace of redemption. So let's consider together Judah's day of reckoning. First, we will see how there was a cleverly laid trap for him into which he fell. Secondly, how God sovereignly used this to crack Judah's heart open and bring him to repentance. And then finally, how Judah makes a confession which shows that he has begun to taste the grace of salvation. Judah's day of reckoning, first a cleverly laid trap, secondly a heart cracked open, and then finally a confession unto salvation. According to verse 12, Judah's Canaanite wife died, and in process of time the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. Now last week I hinted that maybe Judah was not married to this woman. But when I said that, I overlooked verse 12, which is pretty clear in identifying this woman as his wife. Judah may have taken this wife for carnal reasons. It emphasizes that he saw her, he took her, and then went in under her. For the sake of accuracy this evening, it says she was his wife, so I apologize for the inaccuracy last week. But now she was dead. And Judah has gone into mourning. During his time of mourning, Judah would have put on sackcloth and ashes as his wife was embalmed and prepared for burial. Then there would have been a gathering, and there would have been a funeral, and his wife would have been buried, and a spirit of grief would have lingered in Judah's house for a while, at least a week, maybe longer. But at some point, Judah washed his face. And he took off his sackcloth and he put on fresh clothes. That's what it means in verse 12 when it says he was comforted. He was comforted. His time of mourning was at an end. It was time to move on with his life. It was time to go and find some comfort, some consolation, something to relieve this pain of grief and loss. So where does Judah go in order to find some comfort and consolation? Does he turn to the Lord his God? Does he open up the Scriptures? Well, the Scriptures weren't written yet. But does he go back to the promises, back to the testimonies? No. He looks up his friend, Hira, the Adulamite, that Canaanite man of this world. And together they head to the sheep shearing. Now when we hear sheep shearing, we think this was a work event, and it was, but it was more than that. It was a party. The shepherds got together after bringing in the fruits of their labor, the wool that they sheared from their sheep, 
And then they had a feast, a celebration. So there was wine, and there was singing, and there was dancing, and there was food, and there was drink, and there were all kinds of pleasures of this life that Judah and Hira the Adulamite indulged in along with their fellow shepherds. Well, Tamar heard about all of this as she sat in her father's house still wearing her widow's garb. We're not told exactly how long Judah kept Tamar waiting, but it was long enough for Tamar to figure out that Judah had no intentions that she would be given to Sheila to be his wife. Sheila was a grown man, clearly of marriageable age, and yet Judah had made no moves to arrange the wedding day. So, Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands and to lay a trap. She removes her garments that identified her as the widow of Ur and as bespoken to Sheila as his bride-to-be. And then she wraps herself up in a set of new clothes and puts a veil on her face to hide her identity. And then she goes and sits near the road in an open place that was clearly on the way to Timnath, where she knew Judah was headed for the sheep shearing. Now, it never says in so many words that Tamar dressed herself in the clothes of a harlot, but that was obviously her intention. And that's clearly how Judah saw her when he passed through the place where she was sitting. He thought she was a harlot because of the veil she was wearing. Now we could say at this point what a horrible thing for Tamar to do. What a terrible scam. And we would be right. Tamar's methods speak to the fact that she was a woman of Canaan who thought like a woman of Canaan, a woman of this world. This is how you get a man to do what you want if you are a woman, Tamar is thinking, along the lines of Canaanite logic. You use your sex appeal. You manipulate him with your appearance and with your body. That's not the thinking of a virtuous woman. That's not the thinking of a godly woman. That's the thinking of the world. But if this speaks poorly of Tamar, it speaks even worse things of Judah. First of all, beloved, just notice what Tamar assumed about the sort of man Judah was. Her entire scheme was based around the notion that Judah, her father-in-law, could be seduced by a prostitute. And not just any prostitute, but a ritual prostitute with whom Canaanite men had sex as an act of worship of the Canaanite gods of fertility. The word for harlot in verses 21 and 22 of the passage specifically refers to that kind of harlot, a ritual harlot, the kind of harlot that was used in pagan religious practices 
Not that Judah necessarily worshipped idols on a daily basis or participated in pagan rituals on a daily basis, but Tamar assumed that Judah was the kind of man who would lay aside his principles easily, readily, hardly even thinking about it in order to satisfy his appetite for sex. She assumed that Judah was the kind of man who would worship another god if this would enable him to satisfy his lust. In Tamar's eyes, that's the kind of man Judah was. And boy, was she right. Not only did Judah go in to her, but he practically sold himself and everything that he had in order to do it. The staff and signet that he gave to Tamar as pledges were two of the most personal and important items that Judah possessed. They contained personal identification marks and were used in all of Judah's business transactions. One of the commentaries I read said this was like Judah giving away the equivalent in the ancient Near East of all of his credit cards. Another commentary compared it to his social security number and his driver's license. Even from an earthly point of view, in other words, this is totally insane. This is irrational behavior. Give over your most precious and important items to a prostitute whose face you cannot even see. But the lust in Judah was so powerful that he was willing to walk blind into her trap, into Tamar's trap, selling himself and walking like a sheep to the slaughter. There's a warning here. There's many warnings in the Bible, but there's a warning here also about the overwhelming power of sexual temptation, beloved. Sadly, Judah's actions are not unique to Judah. There are many men who have been lured in by the temptations of the strange woman. The Bible warns young men not to go walking down the path that leads to the house of the strange woman. But it's not only young men who have been caught by her after ignoring the wise admonition of a father. Proverbs 7, verse 26 says, Many strong men have been slain by her. She hath cast down many wounded That is, those who are looked up to as the wise and the mighty. Those who are looked up to as the heroes and the brave. Samson, the judge who delivered Israel from the Philistines. David, the king of Israel and the man after God's own heart. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, the Bible says and the most prosperous of all of Israel's kings, Abraham, Jacob, and Judah, the patriarch of his tribe and ancestor of Jesus Christ, many strong men, all caught in the web of sexual temptation and sin. And when you just look at this, even from an earthly point of view, beloved, 
What folly! What folly such men are willing to give themselves over to in order to satisfy these lusts. Judah is willing to hand over two of the most precious items he owns, his staff, his signet. Items that represent far more than just their monetary value, items that represent his tribe, his business, his dignity, his reputation, his own person. But here you go, you unidentified harlot whose face I can't even see. You can have them so long as I can go in unto you and satisfy my sexual appetites. And many men do the same thing today. Here you go. Take my credit card information. Take my money. Let my computer be filled with a long history of the pornographic websites I've visited. Let my hard drive get downloaded with all kinds of videos and pictures of explicit images. Let my whole life in person get wrapped up in this filthy underworld known as internet pornography. so that my mind and my heart get warped and I carry around these images with me everywhere that I go like a filter through which I see all of life now. So that it becomes all but inevitable that at some point, somehow, some way, it's all going to come out. My wife will know. And my kids will find out. Depending on the nature of the content I have been looking at or participating in, I may even have to go to prison. Men do this, beloved. Men do this all the time in our world. And for what? What can possibly be worth the value? of your wife's trust, of your reputation, of your life. A few seconds of pleasure in a dark room with a person you don't even know. Followed by a lifetime of fear and shame and running and hiding and almost certainly getting sucked deeper and deeper and deeper into the vortex, the chasm of sexual depravity. And that's not even mentioning what this does to your relationship with God. Her house, that is the house of the strange woman, Proverbs says, is the way to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. That screen with its pornographic images is like an open chasm through which many fall straight into the chasm of hell. Yet amazingly, God was at work even here 
in this awful, horrible, disgusting situation. To be very clear once more, Tamar is not to be excused for laying this trap for Judah. If this was the kind of story people like to tell today about human empowerment, Tamar would certainly be the hero or heroine of the story. She's being silenced. She's being marginalized by her oppressive father-in-law and by unhealthy social norms. And she's just making use of the means at her disposal in order to find empowerment. What an inspiration Tamar is, so people would say today. But the truth is, Tamar used her sex appeal to deceive and to seduce her father-in-law. This is an offense that will later be condemned in the book of Leviticus with the death penalty. Tamar may have been more righteous than Judah, but that does not make these actions of hers righteous. Far from it. But it's not only Tamar who is laying a trap. God was also laying a trap. Just as God meant it for good to save much people alive when Joseph was sold into slavery, sovereignly working even through the evil actions of men in order to bring about a good result, so God meant it for good when He allowed Tamar to spin this web for Judah to fall into it. And sovereignly, Powerfully, graciously, he used this situation finally to crack open Judah's heart and bring him to his day of reckoning. So, when all was said and done, and Judah went back to his house, he went on to try and cover his tracks. It's noteworthy that Judah does not do this himself. He does not go personally to deliver the kid, the young goat that was the price of his whoredom. Is that indicating remorse on Judah's part? More likely, it's an indicator that now that Judah's lust was satisfied, Judah is a little more conscious of his reputation. He wants to cover up his deed. And he wants to retrieve his precious items. And he wants to do all of this with as little publicity as possible. So he sends his friend, Hira, the Adulamite, to do his dirty work for him. I want to point out that here we learn exactly what good friends do not do. A good friend is not the kind of man who helps cover up your tracks after a sexual escapade. A good friend is not the person who teaches you how to clear your internet history when you have been looking at pornography. A good friend is not the kind of person who shows you how to satisfy your lusts and to get away with it. That's not what a good friend does. 
But Hira, the Adulamite, was not a good friend. So he willingly went in Judah's behalf to find the unidentified harlot and to pay her. But he couldn't find her. He retraced their steps, went right to the spot where they met this woman on the wayside to Timnath. But she was not there. So he asked around a bit. Where is the harlot who was sitting openly by the wayside in this place? But the men who lived in that place looked at each other and blinked. And they had no idea what he was talking about. There was no harlot in this place. Now, if you've ever felt your blood turn to ice, I imagine that's how Judah felt when he heard this news. Uh oh. He's been scammed, and scammed by a prostitute whose face he did not even see, whose identity he does not even know. And she has his staff and his signet. But what can Judah do? If he starts hunting around for her more vigorously, all that's going to do is draw more attention to his deed. It's only going to be a bigger hit on his reputation. The people will start to talk about Judah, this man who is desperately looking around for this prostitute. That's why he says in verse 23, let her take it to her lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid and thou hast not found her. I'm sure this was initially a very frightening prospect for Judah. But then some time went by and nothing happened. And a little more time went by. And gradually, slowly, Judah was able to put the whole incident to the back of his mind. There was no big exposure. There was no big event that put him to shame. So everything must be under wraps. And Judah goes back to his daily concerns and hardens his conscience again as he had done so well before. Then, three months later, Judah hears the news. Tamar is pregnant. Now this was a serious offense. Tamar was the widow of Ur and Onan, Judah's sons, and was betrothed to be the wife of Judah's son, Shelah. In other words, Tamar was spoken for And according to the custom of the day, Tamar was as good as married, even though the wedding had not taken place. For her to be pregnant by somebody who was not Sheila effectively was adultery. And once again, in the book of Leviticus later on, this exact offense that Tamar committed would be punishable by death. A betrothed woman who was found pregnant with another man would be Put to death according to Levitical law. So Judah reacts, and he reacts immediately, and no doubt with a sense of right on his side, and even piety in his mind, as he says Tamar should be brought forth, 
And not only should she be brought forth, but she should be condemned and burnt. How dare she? Oh, this confirms. It confirms exactly what I thought about Tamar. There's something wrong with that girl. Good thing I didn't give Sheila to her. She's responsible for the death of Ur. She's responsible for the death of Onan. And now Sheila will be free to marry somebody else. Tamar needs to die. So Tamar is brought forth from her father's house, still wearing her widow's garb. Judah, as the patriarch of his tribe, stands in judgment over Tamar before the assembled court. There was no case clearer cut than the case before him. With twins in her womb, at three months pregnant, there's a good chance Tamar's belly was already showing quite a bit. Damning evidence. But then Tamar reaches into her cloak and she pulls out a staff and a signet and she lays it before Judah, the judge, for his consideration. Before you pronounce your sentence, Judah, take a look at these. By the man whose identification mark is right here, by that man am I pregnant with these children. You wonder how long the silence lasted as Judah stared at the staff and the signet in front of him. There was no denying it. These were his own staff and his own signet. The last time he saw them was when he handed them over to that harlot whose face he never saw. Now I suppose Judah could have come up with a story at this point to try to save face. He could have claimed that these were fakes, maybe, or that they had been stolen from him, and he has no idea how Tamar got hold of them, and it has nothing to do with this incident of Tamar being pregnant. He could have used his position of power and authority as the patriarch of his tribe to squash Tamar's claim, and maybe he could have gotten away with it. Well, that's not what Judah does. What he does instead is the first indicator in the story that God is going to change Judah's heart. He's going to crack that heart open, that hard, seared heart. And he's going to bring out all the lies, and he's going to bring out all the deceit, and he's going to bring out all the fear and all the shame. And he's going to work repentance in this man. And he's going to make of Judah that wretched sinner who sold his brother into slavery, who ran wide-eyed into bed with a prostitute who turned out to be his own daughter-in-law. He's going to make of that man a man after his own heart. A man who looks like Jesus Christ. And a man who perhaps looks more like Jesus Christ than any other character in the Old Testament. That first indicator that God is going to do this in Judah's life is simply this. He acknowledged what was right in front of him. He doesn't spin a story. 
He doesn't deny it. He doesn't shift the blame to Tamar or call her out for manipulating him and deceiving him, even though she did manipulate him and deceive him. No. He acknowledges the staff and the signet, not just in his mind, but openly. These are mine. The staff is mine. The signet is mine. And I know without a doubt that I am the father of the children that are growing in your womb. Now, beloved, repentance is a lot more than simply acknowledging one's guilt. Repentance involves a whole change of mind. Your whole heart has to be turned around, as it were, from sin to righteousness, from serving idols to serving God. Your mind has to be renewed. And out of that change of mind and of heart, there has to come a whole change of life. A man who is repentant starts to bring forth fruits that are meat for repentance, as John the Baptist said. A man who is repentant stops, to li- stops living in the sins that he was living in before, and he begins to do good works in the service of God. Repentance is something that involves the whole person, in other words. And in this life, repentance is never really finished. The believing child of God is always going to commit more sins in this life from which he must repent and turn. There's a cycle, a cycle that is always going on, and we're always going through this cycle as we are made to face our sin, acknowledge our guilt, turn from it, and live a new life of faith in Christ. Repentance circumscribes the whole of the Christian life, this side of heaven. Nevertheless, it all begins with something very simple. When you are faced with your own sin and guilt, when circumstances of life work out such that a day of reckoning comes your way, Repentance is when you acknowledge what is right in front of you. It's me. I did it. I'm the culprit. I'm the guilty one who violated the justice of God to serve my own pleasure. That simple acknowledgement is so significant, beloved, that without it, there is and can be no redemption. There isn't. And that's not because of a clause God writes, a contract, as it were, with us that says, now if you don't repent, you can't be saved, and if you repent, then I will give you these blessings. No. The reason there is no redemption apart from that acknowledgement and the repentance that comes out of it is because unless a man repents, he has no idea what salvation is in the first place. Do you see? If Judah went on denying this, what would he be saying? What he'd be saying is, there's no problem here. I'm no sinner. It's not me. It's you. It's Tamar. You're the guilty one. I'm righteous. And what did Jesus say about people like that? He said, very well then. 
If you're whole and if you're healthy, then you have no need of me. No need of my righteousness, my grace, my healing power as the physician of your soul. Only the sick need a physician, and that's not you. By your own reckoning, by your own claims. So goodbye. Have a nice day. Now, it's not as though we come to repentance and the acknowledging of sin by ourselves. Clearly not. Judah walked around for years refusing to acknowledge his guilt and his responsibility in the selling of Joseph. He was as blind as any Pharisee for years and years and years. So what's the difference here? The difference is the grace of God. The difference is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings a man to the end of himself and opens his blind eyes. Let's not ever delude ourselves into thinking repentance does not have a vital place in the Christian life and in the Christian's experience of grace. It is absolutely vital and you will experience no grace, no forgiveness, no life with God without it. God has to crack you open. He has to bring you to your own personal day of reckoning so that you understand your need for Him. He did that for Judah. That's clear from one simple little phrase in the text. He acknowledged them. And then he made a confession. And this was his confession. She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. Now we've already seen this is not intended to justify or excuse the actions of Tamar. What Tamar did on the face of it was a despicable act of manipulation and prostitution and incest. As Christians, we may not get into the game of making comparisons. That's the road to self-righteousness, a road which Jesus condemns in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, I may have sinned, but I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Oh, really? But is it not the same lust that drove that man over there to prostitution? That drove you to look at those images on the internet? Or drove you just to glance at that girl who is walking down the sidewalk? This isn't about relativizing sin. But by making that confession, Judah shows that he understands something. Though Tamar went about it in absolutely the wrong way, though she behaved as a Canaanite woman acting under the Canaanite logic of this world, there was something in Tamar's heart that had not been in Judah's heart at all. And that was a hunger and a thirst for Jesus Christ. Tamar. Tamar wanted to be the mother of Judah's heir. Tamar was willing to risk everything for that. She was willing to risk her reputation. She was willing to risk her relationship. She was even willing to risk her life. 
And that's because somehow, some way, Tamar understood that the heir of Judah would be the lion, who is also the lamb, the redeemer, who is also the physician of the souls of the lost sinners such as herself, Tamar. She understood that the heir of Judah would be the man, the Son of God, who would be willing to sit at the table with publicans and harlots and have fellowship with them. Tamar knew that. And though all her seeking of Jesus Christ was clouded and obscured by her fleshly impulses and her worldly reasoning, in the depths of her heart there was a cry for redemption and a cry for the promised seed of the woman. Now that's the realization that hit Judah like a ton of bricks as he sat there staring at his staff and signet. He saw Jesus Christ working through Tamar. He saw in Tamar and in Tamar's hunger his own descendant who would end up being his own redeemer and his own king. And that's why he says, she hath been more righteous than I. For Tamar was after true righteousness where Judah had only been concerned with himself. That's why I say this was Judah's confession unto salvation. It wasn't just that he repented from sin, but it's that he was quickened. The Spirit quickened him so that he made a confession that reflected that he had a true and living faith. And it showed in his life from here on out. Verse 26, he knew her no more. Instead, he took her in made sure that the twin sons that she gave birth to were cared for and protected and given all of the benefits of the household of Judah and recognized as his own heir. And where the story of Judah to this point has been an ugly story, a story of lies and deception and evil, what we're going to see from here on out is a man who is being sanctified and a man who is being changed by the grace of God a man who even plays a primary role in picking up the pieces of Jacob's shattered and broken household and who displays in his own life the mind and the spirit of Jesus Christ. There's a natural fear, beloved, that we have of the reckoning. We fear the exposure. We fear the shame That fear makes us shrink back. It makes us sometimes do strange and irrational things. On the day of judgment, fear is what will make the unbelieving cry out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the fierceness of the wrath of the Son of God. As if anything could escape His attention. But beloved, we mustn't fear the day of reckoning. We mustn't fear the day of reckoning even for our own sins. Because if we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that our sins have already been reckoned with through His blood. 
And though those sins may have a certain power in this life to bring us misery if we walk in them for a while, they have no ultimate power, no ultimate power to condemn us, no ultimate power to leave us naked and exposed on the day of wrath. Who can be against us? Who can condemn us? It is Christ who died. Beloved, don't live as Judah did for so long in denial, in unbelief, carrying the burden of guilt. Live in repentance. Live in faith. Faith in the power of redemption that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll leave you tonight with the words of Romans 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, what a convicting and powerful story A story that speaks right to the heart of every one of us and makes us small. Small before Thee who art holy of purer eyes than to behold evil. We pray, O Father, that Thou would humble us. That Thou would make us small. That Thou would make us foolish in our own eyes so that we may trust in the wisdom of Christ, that heavenly wisdom that comes from above so that we may seek covering through the blood of Christ on the day of final judgment and also on all of those personal days of reckoning that come in our own individual lives. Grant it to us, O Father. Grant unto us the grace of repentance and of faith and of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray.